the biggest, the most interesting thing of all of this is the scaling problem. It's the question of how do you predict what it is that a collective is going to want to do once a collective intelligence is formed. We do not have a science of predicting or managing the goals of collective intelligences. We do not know where these goals come from. Selection is is only one of the answers, is, is only part of the answer. It's not really even the biggest part, I don't think. And uh, long before we can specify social policies based on this stuff, we have to understand emergent collective intelligence at uh, in in model systems things like robotic swarms simulated you know artificial life uh, xenobots all these kinds of things we have to develop a science of the emergence of collective minds be, given that we are all collective minds uh, this is this is this is a a a task for the future of humanity it is just beginning it's an existential uh, existentially important task because I think if we don't figure this out, we're going to be in massive trouble for many reasons. And uh, and I think that's the question that has to be cracked: is is how do you predict and control the the emergent mind that you that that is going to arise in in various ways? I know that usually we only do one snippet at the top of the show, but I couldn't decide between these two snippets, so I'm going to use them both and give a, a fuller picture of where this conversation goes. And if it's actually somebody asked me this on another on another interview, somebody said, "Look, if if you're willing to swap out body parts, genetics, uh, you know, body materials, so what is a human like? Like, what do you think a human really is? Because because I don't think it's the genome, and I don't think it's your anatomy, and I don't, you know, what what is it really? And it was a great question. And as best as I can tell, a human, it, what 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 human really refers to is a level of moral capacity. I don't care what you're made of. I don't care how you got here. I don't care if you were made in a factory or 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 if you were you know shipped to some other planet where you can you know swim in their methane oceans. That, none of that matters. What what really matters is being a human is a certain bandwidth, a, a certain width of capacity to care about uh, about others, about about other types of beings and what happens to them. And and I'm sure that it, that it that it's possible to create creatures that are way have have way bigger capacity than humans maybe it is possible for somebody to actually care in the linear range about every being on on the planet for example and maybe it's possible for today's humans to become that right and so I'm Oshan Jarrow, and welcome to the Musing Mind podcast, where I get to speak with folks at the crossroads of consciousness studies and economics, exploring how each can inform the other. If you would like to skip the intro, get right to the conversation, you can skip to about the eight-minute mark. Otherwise, bear with me. Lately, I've been reading a lot of the late sociologist Eric Olin Wright. So, Instead of just saying that this podcast explores economics, I'll lean on his work a little to be more precise, in that my actual interest is what he called emancipatory social science, which is about generating scientific knowledge for the collective project of transmuting, of transforming conditions of human oppression into conditions for human flourishing. And the main idea there is that there is a moral, not only economic or material, purpose to the production of this knowledge. And while Wright says that purpose is flourishing, I think that's pretty vague or at least uh, too abstracted and it can be broken down. And when you do, I think the piece that is most absent, that is most consequentially left out of the equation of 
how social science can create the conditions for human flourishing is a focus on consciousness, on phenomenology, on how we can leverage the fact that we design our own socioeconomic structures to create environments that are maximally likely to produce richer and richer kinds of consciousness. So my hope is by bringing consciousness into conversation with emancipatory social science, we can build those bridges with scientific rigor. And oh boy, uh, do I have a rigorous, phenomenally interesting guest today. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Levin. Michael is a professor of biology at Tufts University. He is director of both the Tufts Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology and the Allen Discovery Center, and so on, a full academic pedigree. His work is shocking, it is rigorous, and it's pioneering in so many respects. Uh, it doesn't fit neatly into any discipline, certainly not biology alone. But the reason that I wanted to talk to him was twofold. First, uh, we've covered a lot of theory and philosophy about the self and consciousness on this show. Levin brings a biology of the self to the table, right? Providing a, a really concrete story of how selfhood emerged via evolution, which is really a story of how collective intelligences emerge, right? How smaller intelligences like cells get bound up into larger and larger systems like a human body, or even, as we'll explore, an economy. So when I've spoken with folks like Barnaby Rain about capitalism and the self, or with Chris Letheby about psychedelics and the self, we haven't had a biological basis for understanding what the self is. And with Levin's work, we can do that. The second dimension that I think is even more interesting is that Levin studies intelligent systems broadly, and he looks at the strategies and principles that evolution has used to scale up both the intelligence and agency of biological systems. And crucially, Levin's interest is in developing an understanding of these strategies that can apply to any system, whether it's biological, technological, or something in between, so long as it's intelligent. And we'll explore what he takes that to mean. But for us, if his work is really substrate independent, then we should be able to take the principles that he's studying, by which evolution has increased the collective intelligence and agency of biological systems, and apply them at different scales to something like the economy, so as to similarly scale up and foster the collective intelligence and agency of that system. So for this conversation, uh, there's roughly two halves to it. The first hour explores Michael's work within biological systems, and the second half, starting at about the minute or one hour and four minute mark, uh, gets into questions about systems that are larger than human beings, and things start to get really wild there. Um, okay, another thing about this episode is that while the vast majority of it is free and available to all, I have reserved a few extra sections for Patreon supporters only. Um, these are kind of more in-depth examples he gives uh, about things we talk about, including his research with uh, creating Picasso tadpoles and regenerating planarian flatworms, among other things. So if you want to hear more from Michael about his research, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1 a month and gain access to the goods. Uh, you can also just become a Patreon supporter if you'd like to help support the show. Um, you can find links on the show page at the Musing Mind website, or just go to patreon.com slash All right, 
That's enough from me. Here is Michael Levin. All right. So, Michael Levin, welcome to the Music Mind Podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. So, I've never had a biologist on the podcast before, which makes this a little unusual, but I also think that you're an unusual biologist, right? You've co-authored papers with Buddhist scholars, you've written with philosophers of consciousness like Daniel Dennett, and your entire approach to biology is defined by taking the goals and teleology of intelligent systems seriously, which stands in pretty direct contrast to kind of recent trends in biology, which have shied away from asking questions about the ultimate purpose or goals of things. So I wanted to start here by asking you both what drew you into biology as a realm to explore the questions that animate your thinking, but also about this pushing outwards, right? Rubbing up against those boundaries. I'm curious how you experience the fit between your interests and the traditionally demarcated boundaries of biology. Yeah. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, when people ask me uh, how, what, what, how, how to refer to me, right, and, and what it is that I do, I, I almost never say biologist. In fact, I, mm. I don't know, I don't really know what to say. And part of it is that I don't, I don't really, as, as I'm sure will come out when we talk about other things, I don't really believe in a lot of sharp categories anyway. I think these distinctions that we put around disciplines are largely a, a holdover of uh, kind of uh, times of, of lesser knowledge where we didn't really uh, understand how tied together everything is. And, and, and I think they're sort of going to, uh, going to disappear in, in the future. Um, my, 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 you know, my own background, I was, I was interested from a, from a very early time. And when I, when I was a kid, I was interested in two things and that was technology. And in particular, not, not that there was a lot around me. I was, um, you know, bo born in the Soviet union. There wasn't much to look at, but, but, but the TV, hmm. you know, kind of the television set, right. in the innards of, of our, of this ancient, like two with, with vacuum tubes and all that was, was absolutely fascinating to me because it was obvious that somebody knew how to put the stuff together in the right uh, configuration to make interesting things happen. So that, that was like clearly those, those, you know, kind of, kind of magic, but then, but then you find out that you can actually go learn it reliably. So that's amazing. And then there was that. And then uh, there was hanging outside um, with a friend of mine who was really into insects and, and bugs and caterpillars and things. Mm. And, just thinking about that and what made those two things different, if they were in fact different, why it is that these other creatures seem to have preferences and they have complex behaviors. And it, it, it was very clear that they, um, that they liked some states of affairs and they didn't like other states of affairs, whereas the TV seemed pretty, uh, pretty, pretty uh, neutral to whatever came through it. And uh, so, so this, this kind of grabbed me from very early on this, this question of, how it is that you can have minds made up of parts because it was clear that both types of things were made of parts and, and we were made of parts. And, uh, and so how can you have that? And how can you in this physical world have things that, that, uh, that have goals and, and, and preferences and, and, and certain kinds of minds. So that, that kind of, um, uh, that, 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 that kind of interest basically, I think fuzzes over any kind of boundary you might put around a discipline because it, it asks questions that have, have roots in every type of activity, right? Physics, biology, computer science, math, philosophy. It's, it's kind of, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it transcends by one, one discipline. It, it's so interesting that preferences were kind of the, uh, the differentiator, right? Having active preferences was what divided systems like the television that you took apart with the vacuum tubes from systems like the insects that you saw outside. But, okay, so zooming out, uh, wh what I'd like to do is provide a rough outline for the conversation today, 
We're going to cover a lot of ground, a lot of technical stuff at the level of cells, a lot of higher level stuff at the scale of society on the whole. So I want to create a, a little frame for that. So one of the fundamental problems that I read your work as engaging with is this coming kind of Cambrian explosion of types of beings that will exist in the world in the next few decades. So here's one way that you've described this. You've written, novel technologies are exploiting the plasticity and interoperability of life to create novel living beings, such as hybrids, chimeras, cyborgs, brain-computer interfaces. Our future will involve a highly diverse space of novel beings in every possible combination of evolved cellular material, designed engineered components, and software. Current distinctions that rely on the origin evolved or designed, or composition, biological versus technological, of agents will not survive the next couple of decades. So today we have these kind of common sense understandings uh, and formal and informal frameworks for thinking about intelligence and agency, even morality, that rely on these pretty clear distinctions between a biological system and a technological system, right? I don't feel morally dutiful to my computer, but I do to another human. And you're arguing that these convenient uh, distinctions won't last. So in response to this, one thing that, that you've done is focused on this principle of substrate neutrality, right? So for example, you have theories of intelligence and agency that can be used to assess systems no matter what they're made of, right? Flesh, metal, or some combination in between. And where I get really interested here, apart from the implications of your work on consciousness, which I hope we'll get into later, is that I think this feature, substrate neutrality, affords us not only the capacity to apply them to a diverse set of kinds of systems, right? Both flesh and not, but we can also apply them to different scales of systems. And that scale is really large, right? And we can take it from cells to organs, but we can also go beyond them and maybe look at things like society or an economy or a global media platform and apply the same principles throughout to understand the ways that we can optimize for collective intelligence and agency within these systems. So one of the higher hanging fruit that I really want to take a few swings at today is getting a better understanding of the principles that you studied in biological systems that have enabled them kind of in concert with evolution to scale up intelligence and agency and to see to what degree we can begin applying these um, to, to thinking about not only, you know, robust and thriving biological systems, but also robust thriving social systems too, right? How transferable are the strategies between these two substrates? And in order to do this, uh, I was thinking that our conversation today can run from small to large, right? So we'll start, we'll start by setting the context with a quick overview of goals and intelligence. These are central to everything. Uh, then we'll dive down and kind of start at the smallest scales. We'll talk about cells and gap junctions and how selfhood scales up. We can move up to multicellular systems like neural circuits and talk about modularity and symbolic representations of the world and so on. And then we can go up to full humans and even more than human uh, systems. And at each step of the way, we can fill out a bit more of the picture of strategies for nurturing, fostering intelligence and agency. So let me pause there. Uh, does anything come up with you so far? Anything you want to add or correct before we dive in? 
Um, well, um, there, there was a, there was a lot of good good stuff there, and so uh, we, we, I just like to say a couple of quick things. One one is that you know this business of um, substrate independence and the the project of uh, leveraging leveraging your morality or your ethical obligations on the construction of things. You know, when when I when I uh, argue against that, I'm definitely not. I mean, I, I want to be clear. I'm not the first person to come up with this, right? So science fiction mm-hmm. has been dealing with this for probably a couple of hundred years at this point this this idea that uh we we have a very parochial view of what systems that that have some kind of moral um, worth and responsibility what they should look like and what they're made of from basically an n of one example here on earth right so this is the, mm-hmm. the phylogenetic tree here on earth and there's really absolutely no reason that we have to think that first of all evolution is the only way that you get morally worthy minds there, there, there are probably many ways to get there. Evolution is is probably only one way. There's no reason to think that they have to look like us or have to have brains that look like our brains or have to uh, be made remotely similar to the way animals uh, are made here on Earth. And, you know, the field of uh, uh, science fiction has been dealing with it for a really long time. When when a spaceship lands on your front lawn and something sort of trundles out and, and hands you some poetry that, that it's written on the way over because it's so excited to meet you, the one way to decide what you're going to do with it is not to scrape a sample off of its surface and decide that that's illuminated. <laughs> therefore, you know, therefore you're, right. this is just, this is just like your toaster and, and, you know, and, and do whatever you want. Right. Like, like I think right. we all understand that's not how you handle those things. So uh, I think I think we should we should be very clear of that as a as a as a context. This isn't some crazy new idea, and in fact, as as again has been dealt many times in science fiction. You can just do do the experiment in your in your mind. You know that with in terms of that that dichotomy that you said earlier that that you know you don't you don't have obligations to your household appliances, but you do towards humans. So you can just do that experiment. You know, you've let's say you've got a spouse and, uh, and, and they sort of go off and they come back and they say, you know what, I had an accident. I had some, I had a couple of metallic toes grafted on and okay, you know, that that's not going to change your, uh, your, your relationship much. Right. And you can see where I'm going with this. So how, how many things need to change before you're going to end up saying, okay, that's right. it from now on, from now on, you're like the toaster. So that's a really difficult uh, thing to answer. And it's, 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 it's actually pretty instructive to, to think it through that way. And to ask if you, if you wanted to have some sort of a human level relationship with an alien or a novel creature or something else, what are your criteria, right? Because how they got here and what they're made of are not going to cut it. Right. This kind of moving from a binary to a continuum is, is always tricky business. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the way that you've thought through this is taking goals as that invariant element, right, in any intelligent system that we can use to make sense of it and our relation to it. But using goals as that reference frame, it really brings up attention because as you've written, the field of biology has been very, very conscious to avoid talking about the goals of a system, right? You've written about this as, as teleophobia, the fear of telos, of purpose. So let's open this up a bit and start with goals. Why do you take goals to be such an important part of understanding intelligent systems? And why is that such an unorthodox approach, right? Why have goals been shunned? Well, uh, and, and, and first, first, I'd like to just kind of talk about some ground rules that I that I like to follow in these in these kinds of discussions, which is that uh, we we all have some criteria upon which we judge various various worldviews, and so some people have specific a priori 
um, commitments that they have. So for example, some people like explaining everything in terms of chemistry. And oftentimes they'll say that's because they would like to be good reductionists. And, and that, of course, isn't quite true because then they'd be talking about quantum foam, which they really don't want to do. They mm -hmm. want to talk about chemistry. What, what that means is, Dennis Noble has pointed out, they have a, they, they've picked a privileged level of causation, right? And they mm -hmm. sort of, they, they feel that, that, that the best explanations are at that level. Um, there are other, other types of, uh, like M Morgan's canon, for example, urges us to uh, come up with the lowest uh, possible with the explanation for things that has the lowest possible agency involved in it, right? And so these might be these might be the kind of commitments that somebody might have. I I don't share any of those. I think those are very um, derived, and um, uh, I I don't know why why you would start with those. My my commitment is very simple. I like things that help research move forward. I think these should not be philosophical questions. I think these should be empirical questions. Any worldview that helps me do new experiments, get to new capabilities, and do research that I otherwise would never have thought of doing, that's then then I think we're onto something, right? So that's mm -hmm. so I just want to say that that that's how I judge things because I'm going to say a number of things that people probably fundamentally disagree with, and my point is simply that let's 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 drag our our assumptions and our preferences out into the light. And and let's just see what what axioms we're working with. And mine mine is very simple. I just like things that help uh, research move forward. That's mm -hmm. it. And so um, having said that, uh, then then the task looks something like this: What do all agents have in common? Right? What is the what is the variable? If you can think of a con this 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 control knob that. Um, and, and we can talk uh, also about why I think it's a control knob and not a binary switch. But uh, what, what is this knob that, that you're twisting when you go from something with, with extremely low or even zero agency, if there is such a thing, uh, up through things that have progressively more cognitive capacity and eventually human and eventually beyond that? So, so what is it that all these things have in common? Because what I don't think you can say they have in common is any principle of what they're what they're made out of or how they got here. So I don't think evolution is 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 unique in its uh, ability to produce um, produce cognitive structures. So uh, when I think about the answer to that question, the only thing I can really think of that these things fundamentally have in common is some competence, some some level of competency in reaching particular goals. I think that that actually formulating things in terms in these cybernetic terms, right? In this in this this idea of, I mean, cybernetics is really an ideal uh, example of science for all this because. Uh, it's it's really focused on 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 steermanship. It's focused on control. It's not focused on the details of implementation, which you think is ideal. It's what we want, and the idea is simply that we are going to uh, look at how much competency something has in reaching uh, reaching particular goals, and that that I think is a good way to. And in fact, I've I've sort of trotted out this um the, this this model made of that's focused on the size. Of mm -hmm. the right, this the spatiotemporal size of the kinds of goals that a system can possibly work towards. That's a nice way to directly compare all sorts of highly diverse types of creatures. Right. So you take goals as that invariant element that's present in any and all living system or intelligent system uh, that we can latch onto, no matter their composition or origin, to orient ourselves, and that that makes a lot of sense. But Backing up, you know, regarding teleophobia in biology, you've written that generation after generation of biologists have been trained to avoid questions about the ultimate purpose of things. Biologists are told to focus on the how, not the why, or risk falling prey to theology. Students must reduce events to their simplest components and causes and study these mechanisms in piecemeal fashion. And 
you know, also this is the current trend in consciousness research, right? To look at neural correlates and study everything in pieces. But in terms of biology, I can imagine explaining this idea to someone. I even had this reaction and their immediate response being, you know, uh, what do you mean there's no talk of the goals of biological systems? I mean, living systems want to survive. It's the classic Darwinian story and their behavior is fundamentally driven by, you know, the imperative to reproduce our genes. So, is the Darwinian story an insufficient account of the goals of intelligent systems in your view? Do you mean a different kind of goal? How does that kind of familiar Darwinian story kind of fit in with the teleophobia that you're talking about? Um, no, there's there's nothing wrong with that with with that Darwinian story. Uh, the the and, and in fact, <clears throat> people people will try hard to disavow. They will they will say that that story is not really a story about goals at all. That 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 basically basically I think what a lot of people will say is that trying and, and and it's funny because uh if you're consistent about it you would have to say that about yourself which is which is um, i'm not sure how how you do that but, <laughs> but people do do it um you, you know people people will often say look look goals and trying to do things are for advanced metacognitive creatures like humans and everywhere else it just looks like trying it isn't it isn't really nothing's really trying to do anything um they sort of reserve this this striving for goals for systems that that I suppose know that they're it's, you know it's a, it's um it's a kind of uh, second order <clears throat> thing where where you know you're trying to reach a particular a particular goal the the reason that yeah the reason that people are are really uh, still kind of teleophobic is because back in the day when when biology was was getting started there was really only uh, there was only one way to to uh, there, was, there was there was only one way to understand goals and that was uh, as, as a kind of like like the full blown magic at the as it was at the time that humans seem to have, so you had two choices: you can try to uh, accept that there was some sort of magic that you just do not understand in in your science, or you could you could say there is no such thing. Let's let's pretend there's no such thing, and let's see how far we get, and let's just make sure we do this without any sort of of, of, of magic or religious overtones or any of that stuff. Now, the good news is that since the 1940s, we've had a science of machines with goals. That's that being cybernetics and control theory and, and engineering. And it is no longer, that's no longer a problem. You, you, when, when you are talking about goals, you are no longer talking about magic because we have a perfectly good science that helps us make thermostats and self-guided uh, rockets and, 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 you know, all kinds of robotics and who knows what else that uh, understands that you don't need to be magical. You don't need to be biological. Um, and, uh, the, you know, there are, there are, there are ways to, uh, to have goals and, and it's, and it's okay, right? It's not scary. Mm. Yeah. You've, you've already touched on this a little, but goals and intelligence are not the same, but are of course very tangled together. Uh, you've already mentioned the competencies towards achieving goals earlier, but before getting into intelligence, I want to have you expand a little on something you just mentioned, that framework that you've trotted out, you know, for sort of mapping the goals of any intelligent system, um, which you've called a system's cognitive horizon or its light cone. Uh, you wrote about this in your essay with Dan Dennett, that cognitive horizons provide a kind of formal-ish way to measure the goals of any intelligent system. And this idea is one that I think we can uh, will find helpful at a number of scales. So explain this a little bit. What is a cognitive horizon? Yeah. Um, imagine, imagine that, uh, you, you were, uh, again, again, the idea is remember, remember what the, the point of this is. The point is to be able to compare directly different types of agency that might be extremely diverse in, in origin composition and so on. And so when you, when you want to think about what they all have in common and you want to compare the, uh, their, their level of agency, you might ask, 
what are the most grandiose goals that the system is possibly capable is 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 capable of uh, following? So if you tell me that the system the the only thing it can really care about, and when I say care, I mean in terms of practical import, meaning meaning it's going to spend energy to achieve one state of affairs versus another. If you tell me that the only thing that the system is is really capable of caring about is local sucrose concentration then I'm going to say, well, you're probably dealing with a bacteria or something, something like that, right? Which, which is able to measure local, local values of things and it's able to adjust its swimming. And that's about it. If you tell me that this is a system that, is, uh, that, that really cares about the state of the financial markets over the next hundred years and it's worried that the sun is going to burn out at some point, then I'm going to say you're dealing with at least a human level intelligence or, or beyond, right? It's an mm-hmm. intelligence that's able to comprehend this gigantic uh, um, type of uh, state that it can treat as a goal, right? So some sort of, you know, what justice for all, you know, happiness of, of beings across the planet or, or whatever, that, that's enormous. In between those things are all sorts of different diverse intelligence that, 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 carry, that care about uh, different sizes of uh, of types of goals. And when I say size, I mean, in terms of space and time. So for example, if you have something like, uh, let's say, let's say you've got a dog, uh, it's got some ability to reach backwards into the past, some ability to plan into the future, certainly more than a bacterium, but you are never going to get your dog to actively care about what's going to happen three months from now, two towns away, right? It's just right. never going to, ha- right? It's just never going to happen. That, that, that animal's cognitive system is not able to, uh, to, to use those kinds of, um, large state of affairs as the target of its activity. Uh, if you have, for example, a, if you tell me that you have an intelligence that is able to build and, and, and then rebuild when it's damaged a particular structure that happens to, you know, have five fingers and, and, and be of a, of, a, of a certain length, I'm going to say probably you're talking about a, t- a tissue level collective intelligence of cells. It has as a goal uh, a particular target morphology that it can defend and try to, you know, try to remake and spend lots of energy trying to get there. Uh, and, and again, there, there are all kinds of things that will be out of limits for that intelligence, but you can, you can, you can very easily, uh, nail down the kinds of things that it cares about and the kinds of things it's able to work towards. Okay. So we have goals covered as that invariant feature of any intelligence system that can be mapped spatio-temporally, uh, vertically based on how far back into the past it remembers and how far into the future it plans, and horizontally based on how far away from the system its goals are concerned about, whether a centimeter or a mile, and these two dimensions make a, a literal cone that you've mapped out elsewhere. So the last thing before embarking on our spectrum from small to large is defining intelligence. So at a high level, how do you understand intelligence? Yeah, what I would what I would say about intelligence is that when you're talking about intelligence, you are talking about a degree of competency in uh, reaching goals in some arbitrary space. Now, the and and so and so, what does that mean, right? That mean, that might mean that you're just randomly stumbling around. It might mean that you're doing something like run and tumble, which is what bacteria do to navigate mm-hmm. spaces. You might be actually pretty good at avoiding local minima. And if you see, you know, something in your way, you're, you're able to walk around it, you might have a considerable degree of uh, patience or a delayed gratification where you can see sort of a beeline to your goal. But you know that actually, if you wait a little bit, or you go a slightly different path, you can actually reach reach a better goal. So you might have you might have all kinds of different degrees of competencies. And the one thing I want to really say about this, that's, that's important, is that, uh, to me, in much like much like most other things that I'm talking about, intelligence is very much 
uh, observer dependent, which means that when mm. you make a claim about the intelligence of some system, you are equally making a claim about your own intelligence. What you're saying is, here, here is how competent I've been in figuring out what space I think this system is working in and how clever I think it is. And much like trying to give an IQ test to somebody who's smarter than you, that's a very uh, dangerous proposition because it's, <laughs> in, right? because it's entirely possible that you're looking at something and saying, well, uh, you know, to me, this looks like a pretty good paperweight and it might be a human brain. And you might have, you, you might be right that in some space, that's pretty much all it does is kind of, um, um, you know, uh, optimize uh, gravitational pull and, and hold your papers down. But in a different space, it would be this incredibly intelligent thing that you're not even recognizing. And so I think, I think people who work in animal behavior know this very well, that you have to be really humble about the fact that you're bringing your own perspective, right? And that, and that, it, your your models of, of the intelligence of something are only as good as your own ability to uh, to recognize these things. And by the way, uh, just think about where that comes from. And for, for humans, all of our sense organs are are pointed outwards, and so we're very good at detecting intelligence and agency in medium sized kind of medium speed things wandering around in three dimensional space. We're really not very good at recognizing other types of intelligence. Imagine if from from the time you were born, you had this inner sort of biofeedback a kind of sense where you could tell what your blood chemistry was like and what your pancreas and your liver were doing at any given moment. I think I think in that scenario, you would have no problem recognizing these things as really cool uh, uh, intelligences that operate in physiological space. And I can solve all kinds of problems and get around obstacles or whatever. But we don't see physiological space, right? Most of the time, we don't we don't think about it that way. So we have to realize that, that whatever we're saying about the intelligence of anything else, these are just models. These are models that we, f- that we make to help us relate to systems. And, uh, you know, these models are up for grabs and they're up for, for sort of empirical comparison with each other, who's got the better model, but they don't reflect the true reality. And by the way, this, each system uh, is, is, is free to make its own model of itself, which may or may not agree with what, what, what other observers think about it. Yeah, that, that's so interesting, too, to think about this in kind of spatio-temporal mismatches. It's okay. one of the reasons that, you know, if, if I watch a, a video at 100 times speed of a forest, the thing looks yep. alive, right? Yep. Whereas if I look yep. at it from my kind of default state, I don't see that. That's, that's such an that's interesting exactly variable right. to keep in that's mind. That's exactly right. And, and, that, mm. and that crops up everywhere. So for, so, for example, for basic developmental biology, right, if, if, if you were shrunk down to the level of a, to the size of a single cell and you were placed in the middle of a frog embryo or a mouse embryo or, or any other, you know, any kind of embryo and you look around and you see all the noise and all the, all the chaos, all the cells running around. Some of them are dying and it's never the same way twice really. And, and, and they're, and they're missing their target and all this stuff is happening. If you didn't already know what embryogenesis was and that the fact that it creates the, the a correct embryo every single time, I don't think you would in a million years be able to guess what mm. was going to happen. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you would chaos. ever be, you would just see chaos. I don't think you would ever be able to say, oh yeah, this thing's going to make a, a, the same thing every time. And by the way, I think that thing will be a fish. You would never be able to say that. <laughs> this is right from it, it, perspective of, is, is everything. And I think that this is what leads us to be grossly, um, you know, misled about, about the agency of all kinds of things around us, including, as you earlier said, massive things like the evolutionary process itself or, or large scale, you know, large scale social structures or whatever. Right. Okay. So with this in mind perspective, Let's go down to the bottom of the continuum and look at cells. Um, and, and this idea in particular of scaling selfhood, it's, it's one of these ideas of yours that I think it's so fascinating, has all, many, all kinds of implications. Yeah, but the idea of how cellularly speaking, selfhood scales up, right? And you've written that 
the self is a computational boundary and little cells are essentially little selves and evolution has found a way to combine them into bigger and bigger selves. And in that essay with Dennett, um, you tried to, I think, convey the gravity of this process. You guys wrote, the key dynamic that evolution discovered is a special kind of communication allowing privileged access of agents to the same information pool, which in turn made it possible to scale selves. This kickstarted the continuum of increasing agency. So I want to open up this, this view of what the key dynamic is, how selves scale. Um, you know, and as I know you know, famously in, in the philosophy of mind, specifically with panpsychists today, there's this big problem known as the combination problem. Um, and for listeners, loosely, panpsychism would be the position, you know, you're rejecting Cartesian dualism, that there are different substances for matter and mind, and instead, mind is fundamental to the natural world. Everything has some capacity or, or degree of consciousness. And the formal problem is the question of how then all these different instances of consciousness in the world combine into larger and larger instances. And, and your work with cells here, I think, has a lot to say about this. So can you walk us through the idea of how little agents like cells combine to become larger agents like organs? Yeah, well, um, I, so so I'll tell you I'll tell you a story, but uh, I want to sort of preface that by saying two things. The story that I'm going to tell you is quite specific in some details, and I'm in no way claiming that this is the only way it happens. I'm saying that this is one way that evolution has found to do this here on Earth. There are probably many other ways uh, for that to happen, and and we don't know those ways. But but I think I think this particular scaling mechanism is very instructive. So I think we can learn a lot there, and maybe that'll help us find alternatives elsewhere, either through engineering or, or exobiology or something like that. Mm. I'll also, I'll also say that, yeah, I, I will start with cells because that's the story that I know how to tell. And that's the story that experimentally we've been following it up. But I actually think that cells are in no way um, the basement of this whole thing. In fact, even 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 we and others have have looked at a memory a memory and learning and things like chemical networks. So so simple gene regulatory networks of let's say a, you know half a dozen to a dozen elements already have six different kinds of learning that they can do. And if you've looked at any of the work on um, uh, active matter, like uh, like some of the work on the on the on the droplets, the chemical droplets that do mazes and things like this, I I think that I think that. Uh, it, it it really goes all the way down, and, and I mean, people who are mm. much 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 more sophisticated about the physics of it, like like Chris Fields and Carl Friston and so on, can tell stories about uh, basic uh, pieces of, uh, of 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 physics that are nowhere near being cells. And I think from that perspective, intelligence and kind of nano goal directedness starts long before you get cells. I think what biology is great at is scaling it up. So that you don't get, um, you know, ba basically, so that so that you combine little tiny uh, little tiny pieces of physics, which basically only know how to do least action kinds of principles and active inference, right? And that's that's probably the basement of of of, of cognition. And and what biology is great at is scaling it up so that it, it, it these things now care about bigger and bigger goals, as opposed to let's say bigger and bigger rocks, which are you know sort of they, their their goals don't really scale. It's 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 kind of the same as as, as mm. the pieces. So 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 having said all that, um, I, I I my my favorite story starts starts with cells, and and the story I can tell is is simply this that. Uh, by the time you have a functional cell, the one thing you know that it has to have is some kind of very simple homeostatic cycle. So it, otherwise, you wouldn't have a living cell. So so it has this loop that has three main components. And and let's let's think about something very simple like uh, like metabolism or holding pH constant or something like that. The idea that the cell has the ability to measure something that it cares about, so it has some sort of sensory apparatus, and that might be a receptor or, or some other you know some other thing like that. 
And then it, uh, it has some sort of um, internal representation of what the correct measurement might be or a range of measurements. And then uh, what it's able to do is to take those measurements. And when those measurements are out of the appropriate range, the cell can take action. So this is, this is a basic homeostatic loop. It's the same thing your thermostat does, right? In keeping, um, uh, in keeping your, uh, your, your house at a, at a certain temperature. And uh, that is that is what a, a a a you know a tiny little that's what a tiny little goal looks like. But uh, the reality, I think, is that w- you could once once you once you have these very basic uh, simple homeostatic loops that give you the ability to expend energy towards specific outcomes, then then uh, other other very interesting things happen. One interesting thing happened, and and I want to kind of. Um, I'll I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell uh, the story of the scaling of the goal first, and then we can talk about the scaling of the of the mind that goes with it. One one thing that that you might uh, that you might have in these cells is something like if you're if you're driven to uh, to do this homeostatic cycle, one thing you might want to do is is try to predict what happens next. So instead of being purely reactive, you might have a little bit of a mechanism for anticipation or learning. In other words, from a pattern of what happens, let's say circadian, um, um, you know, these kind of rhythms in nature. You know, the sun goes up and down, you know, the temperature is going to change, various things happen. Uh, you might want to start take action before, before you actually need to, right, to, to, to sort of be, be really optimized. And so as soon as you do that, you have an interesting problem, which is you want to predict your environment. Your environment is really uh, complex. All kinds of things happen. What's the, what's the sort of least uh, surprising thing in your environment. Well, that would be a copy of yourself. So mm-hmm. one thing that you might do as a cell that wants to uh, make, make good models, predictive models of its environment is to surround yourself with copies of yourself. Because then the cells in the middle, and this is this is uh, something that Chris Fields and I wrote about as the, we, we, he called it the imperial model of, of uh, multicellularity. What you might do is say that the cells in the, the cells on the outside are still, they're sort of frontline infantry. They're still facing this unpredictable world, but the cells on the inside have a much nicer, more predictable physiological milieu because, because their self models match the behavior of the thing they're next to, which is basically a copy of themselves. So you can start a kind of multicellularity that way. And then something else interesting happens when you, this is, this is, this is how these goals scale. If you, if you are sitting next to, so, so now we know why you're sitting next to other cells. If you're sitting next to another cell, if you simply send a signal to that cell, let's say some diffusible molecule off your surface or something, that other cell can sense it with a receptor then it knows that it came from outside. It basically, you can, you can, you can uh, take action based on it. You can ignore it. It might be lying. It, who, who knows, who knows, you know, what, what that is. And you can, you can decide how you're going to act with respect to it. And that helps you keep individuality, right? When you have this sharp division between sender and receiver of information, it helps each one keep their individuality. Imagine now that, uh, Instead of that, what you invent or, or, or discover through evolution is something called a gap junction. A gap junction is this little little protein um, hatch that sits on the uh, surface of cells. It's like a little submarine docking hatch that basically directly connects to another gap junction on the surface of another cell. That the, the magic there is that what it allows is, is signals to go directly from the inside of one cell to the inside of another cell. So when that happens, let's say something happens to cell A. There's a, let's say a calcium flux that serves as the memory engram of that event you know, it triggers all kinds of internal processes. If you've got a gap junction open to cell B, that calcium signal is going to propagate into cell B. Cell B now receives this memory of something happening. 
calcium doesn't have a metadata label on it that says, where did I come from? It's just calcium. So as long as you're both interpreting information the same way, that second cell has no idea whether this is real information that of, of, of about something that happened to it or it's coming from outside, right? So mm. you lose you lose the ability to what what that does is that erases the boundary between you and me. If we're sharing information, if your memories are my memories and vice versa, and we can't tell who had what memories, right? What happens is that that calcium flux or whatever whatever that memory signal is is a false memory as far as cell B is concerned, because that event never happened to cell B. However, it's a it's a true veridical memory to the new uh, uh, sort of hyper agent that consists of both A and B. And so mm-hmm. that ability to share information helps erase, it's a kind of like, uh, you know, like a mind meld, basically, that, that helps erase individuality. And of course, of course, there's a lot of nuances I'm, I'm glossing over, because of course, not everything propagates through these gap junctions and so on. But it becomes harder and harder. So that's, so, so that's the first thing that happens is that, that, that informational, that, that erasure, erasure of ownership information binds cells into, um, into into larger larger units. The other thing that does that is stress. So if I'm under stress and I have some stress molecules to indicate that that this, things are out of uh, out of homeostatic uh, boundary, you know, out of the whole correct homeostatic range, and I have some stress molecules that that indicate that that I need to be going through this kind of response loop to try to make things better. If I one thing I might do is I might propagate those stress molecules to my neighbors. Now, why would I want to spread systemic stress? Because then my problems become your problems. Stress is a kind of right. It's a kind of cognitive glue. It means that you're going to be motivated to help me, not because you're altruistic and you care what happens to me. You just want me to stop stressing you out. And so, and so, stress. Right by by propagating stress, it means that now 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 look at what it means. It means that if if we are connected, if there are multiple cells. That are connected in this way by by, by informational um, uh, propagation by stress. It means that now when they take measurements, they take measurements of much larger things. A tissue takes measurement of of spatially of, of very large things. Also, it takes time for information to cross the tissue. So that means that you are now smeared out in time as well as space. You're not just bigger spatially; you're bigger temporally. So your now moment is kind of thicker. It also means that uh, so so you take measurements of bigger things your memory capacity is now bigger, whereas before you could only store very simple things as far as your set points. You know, now you're a big network. Network can store all kinds of, networks can store all kinds of information. So your your computational capacity is bigger. So, so remember the three things of our homeostatic loop, your measurement, your, your memory of your set point, and your action. So your measurements are bigger, your memory is bigger, and the kinds of actions you can take are bigger. Instead of just doing little single cell level things, you're a whole tissue now. You might bend. You might uh, you might uh, you know migrate in a particular way. You might uh, um, undergo some sort of deformation. So so your actions are bigger. Everything is getting scaled, and because of the because of the scaling of the stress and the scaling of this goal directedness, the kinds of things you care about now become much, much, much larger, right? You, you, you're capable now as a single individual of caring about larger states. For example, what is the curvature of my tissue? It, you know, now it can be in a certain range, whereas before single cells don't know about the curvature of your tissues. They don't know how many fingers right. you have, but a large collection of c- cells does, right? So this is, so, so you can see what's happening here. This is, this is the scale, uh, the scaling up of specifically of of goal directedness it's the ability to care and act toward progressively larger and larger things and that's the process i mean look we're all collective intelligences right you know people kind of act as if well an anthill is a collective intelligence but me i'm i'm a centralized you know being no we're all Hmm. bags of cells right we're all bags of neurons and other kinds of cells and 
what evolution does is it is it apparently uses the same kinds of dynamics and pivots them. Whereas before you might have been taking care of metabolic problems and transcriptional problems, and eventually, as a multicellular creature, you might have been taking care of anatomical morphospace problems, meaning navigating in the space of anatomical configurations to put your body in, in whatever structure is, is optimal. And eventually, brains and uh, and muscles came along, and now you can do the same th- trick in three-dimensional space. And now you can have goals about moving around and goals about being a rat in a maze or a human with, with you know, long-term goals. So that's kind of a, a whirlwind um, sort of story about um, about the scaling of all this, and then and then there's another there's another piece to this, which is if you are metabolically limited, meaning that energy is not uh, unlimited. You know, mo- mostly our AIs now they they have as much energy as they want, right? They're plugged into a network, an electrical grid, and they get as much energy as they need. But real cells aren't like that. Real cells. Uh, they have to worry about where where their energy is going to come from and their metabolism, and they have a budget. They have an energy budget. So let's say let's say that uh, you're a cell or a collection of cells, and you have various effectors. There's things you can do. You can think about it as the outer sort of output layer of a neural network or something like that. You know, the, these there are, there are actions you can take. What you want to do is is uh, because because your your metabolism metabolic budget is limited, you want to very rapidly figure out which are the most uh, causally effective actions. You don't want to be sending messages to things that don't matter. You don't want to be trying to twiddle knobs in the environment that don't do anything. You you want to identify where are the pressure points in my environment. Where are the things that when they change, lots of other stuff changes. Right? What what are the what are the triggers of important change? Because that's where you want to put all your energy. You don't have the energy to just sort of you know signal in every possible way to everything that's out there. So that means that you have to have some. And 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 by the way, we don't know yet how this works. Where this is under heavy investigation right now, uh, you have to have some mechanism for gauging the causal effectiveness of the things around you. And if if you're good at that, if you're good at figuring out where the where, uh, where causal uh, agents are in your environment, you will eventually turn that same lens onto yourself. And I think this is how we all end up with stories of ourselves as the central protagonist, uh, you know, Dan Dennett calls this the, mm. the, the center of narrative gravity. We, we all end up with these self models as the center of causal influence of free will of all these kinds of things, because it fundamentally comes from metabolically uh, uh, challenged and, and, and limited cells trying to ascertain which things in their environment are actually worth spending energy to try to manipulate. And so all of this kind of stuff that really reaches uh, a high level in, in humans and other animals in terms of recognizing agency and, uh, you know, around you and then telling stories about yourself, right? Confabulation about your own reasons why you did things and, and how, you know, how causally uh, powerful you are and all these kinds of things. I think everything can be traced back to this scaling story of single cells trying to figure out how to get the most bang for their book given a limited metabolic um, expenditure. Mm, wow, that's fascinating. So, one thing that I, I want to point out within all that that I think is so interesting, which you have elsewhere, is that when the cells are joining together to form these larger systems and work towards these larger goals, it's not that the cells are becoming more altruistic or deciding to become mm. team players, that mm. the, they all remain perfectly self-interested, just that since whatever happens to one cell you know, gets, gets transferred to the other and they can't distinguish from who it came or to whom it happened, um, it, it becomes in every cell's self-interest 
to act in a way that aligns with the self-interest of all of the other cells in the network. I think you and Dennett called this some kind of karma, even if I remember correctly. But is that right? It kind of aligns the self-interests? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the so, so my analogy to karma was simply this. Uh, if, if, if we are connected by gap junctions, there's no possible way for me to so-called defect, right, in, in game theory terms and do something nasty to you because it's going to come right back to me immediately. If I poison you, uh, guess what's going to happen minutes from now? I'm mm-hmm. getting poisoned. This is this is the most efficient uh, karma possible. This this is you know this is karma that works great, and and there's absolutely no way to um, uh, once we're under those those kind of constraints, there's there's no way to defect from each other. Um, yeah, I think uh, I, I I think the the th- th- think about something very interesting happens to the calculus of of game theory and selfishness and so on when you don't keep the number of agents fixed, right? So, so to my knowledge, mm-hmm. um, all of all of the 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 existing uh, work uh, on, and, and I'm actually uh, teaming up with with some people who, who work on this in, in economics and 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 so on, uh, because I, I think we this we, this can be developed rigorously and as rigorous math. But think about think about this. It, you, you, when when we do, for example, prisoners' dilemma types of models, right? As far as who's going to cooperate with whom, who's going to defect, and so on. You make those kind of models. What's always fixed is the number of players. Right, there may be two players. There may be more. It might be a spatialized prisoner's dilemma. There might be might be lots of players trying to do you know selfish econom- rational economics to sort of uh, get the upper hand. Something very interesting happens when the number of players isn't fixed, and and we're doing now uh, simulations on this. But but we actually did my 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 son and I did a home. Um, project last year and it, it, it's uh it's online as a as a preprint the 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 outcome of this thing it's uh there's this slime mold called physarum and physarum is interested for many interesting for many reasons it uh it's a it's a single cell it's got many nuclei but it's a single cell kind of thing and it spreads out it almost looks like lightning it's like a, it's like this fractal pattern and it spreads out and it knows how to how to run around its environment and uh, and look for look for food and make certain decisions so 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 here's the experiment that we did imagine you've got this physarum of a certain size it's a kind of a large colony and you put a piece of oat and the oats is is what it likes to eat you put a piece of oat next to it and uh you know part of the physarum starts moving towards the oat and then you take a razor blade and you basically cut the p the part that's moving towards it you cut it off from the rest of the body now let's 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 do the calculations of of where the selfish actions lie if the the little piece from the perspective of the little piece what should it do well what it should do is go eat the oat and not have to dilute it by with this gigantic body that's sitting there right and not share so that's that's mm-hmm. the obvious that's the obvious thing to do is not not you know get all the nutrients instead of having to share them with with this with this big body but Instead, if what it did, if if in fact it first merged, then this whole question completely goes away. You don't have the ability to even think about this. It doesn't make any sense. It's not defined to try to take this action that's going to be uh, to, to, to take the nutrients for yourself and not leave for the rest of the body because you, in, in an important sense, you don't exist anymore. So the number of agents is either two or one and the calculus of what you ought to be doing depends very heavily on how many agents there are. And the number of agents, changing the number of agents, meaning splitting, merging, that kind of stuff, is is an important action you can take, as well as <clears throat> actions in the regular environment. As it happens, the physarum tends to tends to rejoin first, and uh, that which is kind of interesting, and and, mm. and who knows what the evolutionary pressures on that were. But but the, this 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 idea that in order to even help, in order to even be able to. Uh, have selfish thoughts, and I use the thoughts kind of in quotes because n- none of this, of course, is is a second order kind of process the way that that, that humans, you know, a self aware process. But the, in order to be able to consider defections, you need to have a self that is 
differentiated enough from the rest that this that this kind of calculus even makes sense. And that's I think that's what happens in cases of cancer where the cells are no more selfish than any other cell. It's just that the self has gotten really small and they're back to kind of amoeba lifestyle. So I think I think that's that's the kind of um, process that that really ratchets up the the, the cooperation and the intelligence. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. And, and there's related work on this too that is kind of uh, complementary, parallel to the way the direction you just described. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of the Quality Research Institute. They've been trying to formalize this idea of open individualism, but basically the idea being that. Uh, the boundaries of identity or selfhood really do change the calculus of game theory. And you're describing the way that works kind of at the cellular level. But another way that another direction research has been done on this is giving people MDMA or certain kinds of psychedelics that, again, act on the kind of felt boundaries of selfhood. And then they run through all these kind of prisoner's dilemma, dilemma type situations. And they found that the people you know who take uh, were given a bunch of MDMA actually act in ways that are consistent with a kind of higher, more collective sense of selfhood relative to the individual ones. You get more cooperation such that, you know, the the open individualism when you are less confined in your selfhood actually lends to more cooperation, changes the the dynamics, the yeah. calculus. It's it's super interesting. It's very interesting. And and you know, and I'm not I'm not shocked by it because these kinds of neurotransmitter dynamics are way older than neurons and brains. This is the kind of stuff that cells would have been using very early on to in fact figure out where their boundaries are. So one of the things that uh, that is not obvious, even though we, we sometimes treat it as obvious, is where the boundaries of any particular agent are. Cells have to figure it out. You know, to, to even inside the body, uh, for any given cell, the neighboring cell, that's its external environment. The cell doesn't know where to put that boundary. I mean, to us, you know, sort of staring at each other, we kind of say, okay, at the border of the skin, that, there it is. But, but, but to, the, to the biological system itself, the question of where you end and where the environment begins is completely not obvious. It has to be figured out on the fly uh, it's, it has, in order to be able to predict the environment and to have good homeostasis. Cells have to make models of themselves, of the environment, of the boundary between them. And the lots of room for involvement of neurotransmitters from the very first uh, from the very first stages in that, and so yeah, I'm not I'm not shocked that um that kind of thing has carried over into uh, into human psychology. Yeah. Okay. So by connecting the internal milieu of cells, they join into these larger cooperative systems, perfectly aligned self interests. This loop cascades over and over again. We get a scaling up of goals, uh, competency, intelligence. You, you, you've also pointed out how this driving upwards is not something that evolution is micromanaging and controlling. Instead, you've written that evolution, it seems, doesn't come up with answers so much as generate uh, flexible problem-solving agents that can rise to new challenges and figure things out on their own. And so kind of going from single cells to multicellular networks like neural networks, organs, I think this is a good scale to tease out how evolution is doing this and the strategies it's using. And you've written about at least two of them that, that it's used uh, being modularity and pattern completion. So I wanted to touch each of these in turn. So let's start with, with modularity. What is modularity and how is that helping enable the kind of upscaling of intelligence and, and goals here? Yeah, so let's think about, okay, so 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 I call this the multi-scale competency architecture. And uh, we all know that uh, swarms are made of animals, which are made of uh, organs, which are made of tissues and cells and, and organelles and so on, right? So that's that's kind of the structural modularity. What's more important than that, I think for, for, for our purposes here, is teleological modularity, meaning that you're, you're not just a collection of modules, each of those modules is a local a goal-directed agent, which is trying to solve problems, optimize its own experience 
in some particular space. And I'll give you lots of examples. By, by the way, I want to say a, min- a minute ago, you had said that um, this, this whole thing uh, sort of, you know, leads to perfect cooperation. I, I, I want to I nuance that by saying that cooperation, but not perfect cooperation. So for example, mm. one of the things that we've studied is the competition of organs inside the body. And lots of people that we, we wrote a, a review on this, where there's lots of data to, to, to show that cells and tissues inside the body are actually competing for informational and metabolic resources, even though they have identical genetics, right? It's, it's very interesting. And so, so I think in the end, the intelligent, robust, kinds of um, things that we see and, and their failure mode. So things like, um, you know, dissociative identity disorder and all kinds of other stuff, all the, the failure modes as well as the success are due to this dynamic of cooperation and competition of your components within and across levels in the body. So not only, but but here's the important thing. It, it isn't just that evolution uses this uh, as a nice feature to kind of be more more powerful. There's no avoiding it because uh, unlike, unlike engineers of old who worked with passive materials, right? If you're working with copper or, or, or wood or something like that, you're working with a passive material. You, you have to take care of everything it's ever going to do, right? All basically, basically, I mean, it mm-hmm. has some structural properties. That's really all you can, you can count on. Uh, you can do a little better with active materials or computational materials, right? And you can act, you can, you can, you can take, you know, um, exploit some of that. But when you're in biology, you are building with uh, agential materials, you're building with cells. So whether whether you as a bioengineer, and, I, and this is really important, and people people try to make a, a huge distinction between designed and evolved. Uh, I, I, I think the more interesting thing is what's what, what's the same? What's the symmetry here? As a bioengineer, or as evolution itself, it doesn't matter. In both cases, you are dealing with an agential material, you are dealing with a material with agendas, meaning that um, you know, the, 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 the kind of, uh, image I have in my mind of this is like trying to build a tower out of, out of bricks or out of cats. You need completely different, <laughs> right. You need, you need completely different strategies because the bricks will sit where you put them. Right. Whereas when you're building with cells or tissues, you don't, you don't search the space of all possible micro configurations because those aren't up to you. The cells are already doing stuff. They have their own agendas. They will, you know, they, they will do all kinds of active behaviors what you should be searching and what, what evolution searches and what, what future bioengineers will search is the space of signals, inducements, uh, uh, different kinds of um, rewards and punishments uh, that, will, that will cause the agential material to do what it needs to do. So if you know that your eye is perfectly capable of, of, if you can rely on the fact that your eye is perfectly capable of getting where it needs to go from, from s- certain uh, distances that, you know, in incorrect positions, you don't have to worry about uh, micromanaging that whole process. But what you might do is tweak the thing that tells the eye where to go, the, the, the mechanism that encodes the target morphology, right? It's a completely different, and, and it's a completely different way to engineer. It's a way to, and, and by the way, it changes not only how you engineer, because you are now not, uh, not, not, not micromanaging everything and, and solving it all, all yourself. You're a collaborator with your material. This, by the way, is going to be uh, an interesting development in the future for, um, uh, for for IP for for patenting and intellectual property because because in the past you could as a as a as an inventor you had a you had a recipe where everything was up to you this I did this and this and this and that is why my thing worked and and there's my patent in the future it's going to be well I rewarded the cells for this and this and then they did this amazing thing 
And so it's not, mm, it's not yeah. the same, right? It's not the same thing as having a recipe for, for, um, for, for passive materials. You're, you're literally collaborating with your, with your material. And, uh, and, and I can tell you some, some interesting examples of that with respect to Xenobots and other, other things we've done, but that's, you know, that's what happens to, to in, in, in evolution, that, 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 that modularity is the ability of the parts to get their job done, even when circumstances are changing. Yeah, uh, man, that's so interesting. And, and I can't help but think, uh, this might be a stretch, but I'm curious about it. I, I, this whole time I was thinking of, of entrepreneurship and innovation, mm. and you've, mm. you've spoken about modularity, you know, in terms of, you know, the stakes for testing out mutations being kept reasonably low, right? And so I think yep. about something like uh, a safety net. One, one way you can kind of speak about the role of a safety net in society is to keep the stakes low to try out um, entrepreneurial experimentation, innovation, mm. whatever you want it to be. Um, and, you know, and you can talk about unemployment insurance, guaranteed income, public goods, whatever it is. But this idea of reducing um, the stakes for experimentation and allowing mutations to be felt out and explored with kind of uh, applied to an economic scale. Do you, do you think that there is a, a way to draw a parallel there? Um, there, there may be, and this is, this is kind of, you know, once, once we, once we get to that, uh, part, part of the, uh, part of the talk, we can, we can sort of, uh, talk about, um, what, you know, what, what the, what the, wh wh which parts of these could be, could be, uh, uh, pushed over. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's move up a level of scale again. We've been talking about circuits and systems within, you know, a single human organism. Let's move to systems where the components are not cells, but humans, right? Larger than single human systems, maybe, economy, society, a community, media, swarm, so on. And th the first question I have here is how far up we can take uh, your work? Because, you know, for example, theory of gap junctions as the kind of primary mechanism applies, I assume, with, with a human organism as the upper limit, but I don't want to assume because it's, it's not clear to me that there are uh, gap junctions that can connect humans and their internal milieu in the same way that they're connecting cells. It's kind of a notorious problem that we're black boxes to each other and I can't share the uh, I can't perfectly share my inside with you. This is actually a source of a lot of anxiety. Um, but maybe there are parallel mechanisms. I don't know. So how far do you see kind of mind melding being that mechanism that, that unites parts into holes? Yeah, I mean, really interesting questions. And again, I'll just uh, preface this all again by saying that uh, I'm. These are just these are just kind of my, my my thoughts on this. It's not like I have uh, any any actual research on this. But but I will say that um, first of all, uh, the 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 black box to each other is is a very interesting problem for a number of reasons. First first of all, you in fact could. Uh, you you could gap junction us together, and and people have done that uh, before. You can you can do uh, you can do parabiosis, and in particular, you can do brain fusions at the level of uh, at the level of tissue, and wow. the, right. And so and so, uh, you think about this is this is this is a thought experiment I did um, to try to you know um, I, I I really I'm really not into binary categories, and and I thought well well surely the the binary category of first person versus third person like that sounds like a really binary category, and and no you can you can make a continuum there too, and it goes like this. Uh, I'm sitting here uh, studying uh, studying your brain. And the way I do it is I've got some electrodes sticking in your brain. And I'm looking at the data. The, the data is processed by computer. I'm looking at the screen. And th this is science done in third person. Whatever you're experiencing, I don't know what you're actually experiencing. What I do know is that there's activation in particular uh, areas of the brain. And, you know, and I can say some things about that. But, but I don't actually know what it's like to have that experience. So, so I'm looking at this. I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of electronics here that, that may not need to be here. Why don't, why don't, I, why don't I take some of these... Um, some of the electrodes that are coming out of your head. And instead of plugging them into my computer and then having to look at a monitor, I'm just going to stick them into my own brain. 
I'm going to like, like, right. Like, well, I mean, why not? It's biofeedback, right? If I can, you know, people, people, um, have, have, uh, people have learned to to have magnetic senses and, uh, you can, you can instrumentize almost anything. You can learn to, to kind of handle like the blind, they have these, um, the electric lollipop, which is this thing that takes images off of a camera and puts it into little, um, little electric zaps on your tongue. And people learn to see that way and they can walk around. It's a, it's a device for, for, um, for vision loss. So, so, so yeah, I'm just gonna, instead of staring at the screen i don't need this i don't i don't need to pass all this through a computer and my retina i'm just gonna patch your brain directly into my brain and then i think well maybe you know these why this wire interface probably losing a lot uh i'm just gonna we're just gonna directly fuse our brain together and you know you could say that well mammalian brains don't fuse together that's just the detail that's just because right now they're not pretty they're not that regenerative but you can and people have done it with Animals that that do this quite nicely, for example, axolotl salamanders. You can you can do this. You can make you can fuse brains. You can fuse uh, almost anything you want. So at that point, uh, right? So you're progressively going from a purely third perspective, third person perspective. By the time we fuse our brains, two interesting things happen. First, this is no longer third person perspective. I, to whatever extent you feel what's going on in your brain. I can now feel what's going on in your brain, right? For whatever, whatever, and, and I'm not saying we don't, we don't have any idea what that is, but, but whatever it is that allows you to um, have uh, uh, conscious uh, states with respect to the states of your brain, I now share those. So, so sharing mind states is possible. However, there's a, there's a price to pay, which is that neither you nor I exist anymore. What exists now is a new creature that used to be part you, part I, but but that's gone now. We have there's a there's a new being because we can no longer for the for the gap junction uh, for the same reason as the gap junction story, we are no longer we no longer have the individuality that allows us to say there's me and there's you. We are and and there are, and there are human examples of every part of the story, and those are conjoined twins. There are conjoined twins that share different parts of the body, different parts of the brain. There are there are twins that share brain regions. Like all of this is completely biologically uh, uh, a reality. And so, and so, uh, so, so you can, you know, you can in fact do this. Uh, it, it leads to an interesting, an interesting kind of, kind of phenomenon, um, which is that if you do, if you do, uh, third person science, you can, you can learn a lot about neuroscience, about cognition, about behavior, about all, all those kinds of things. If you want to learn about actual consciousness, and I know there's a lot of people that, that, that work supposedly on consciousness. I think that, that the only way to really work on consciousness is to become part of the system. And this is something that, you know, this is something that, um, oddly enough, uh, hundreds of years ago, the old, old alchemists talked about this, the difference between alchemy and chemistry was supposed to be that chemistry you can do in a third person perspective you don't change when you're doing chemistry right the, the material changes but you're still mm-hmm. you and you take measurements and it's public and it's objective and it's observable when you're w- the the alternative to this is you're studying something that is only really understandable from the first person perspective and the only way you're going to do that is to change you're going to become part of something you're going to open up boundaries or or do or, or fragment or do something else where you will find out what it's like that's the answer to your question about what does it feel like to do to to be xyz but you're no longer the same person there you can't be right so 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 you cannot right. remain the same and and so and so i think i think that's um particularly interesting and it's it, it, it also, it also links to this issue of, um, you know, people, and, and I don't talk much about consciousness at all. I don't, I don't have that much use, you know, interesting things to say about it. But, but, but one of the things I think I, it is interesting that I don't hear people talk about much is if, if you had a, let's, let's say, let's say we reached a, uh, a point where somebody had a correct theory of consciousness. 
Okay. And so this is, this is, this goes back to your question of, you know, can, can, can you really, um, feel what another, what another being is feeling? If right. we had a correct theory of consciousness and I, and, and what, what do, what do correct theories do? They, they make predictions about specific cases. So now I ask you, okay, well now here's, you know, I've made this brain and in, in my laboratory, it's got three, you know, three hemispheres and it's got some cells from different kinds of animals. Well, who knows what it is? I've, I've made this thing. What is it like to be that creature, right? What, what is the, Never mind. Never mind what the answer is. What What is the format of uh, in which your predict in which your theory makes predictions? We know we know the format of every other theory in science. It, it numbers, right? It gives you numbers uh, of various things. What is the in what format does a good theory of consciousness give you answers? Poetry. Mm-hmm. I mean, poems. I, I don't. You know, I, to to me, it's because because numbers aren't going to do it. So it can't so be numbers, right? It can't be numbers. Well, what can it be? I I suppose it can be poetry, but I think in the end. All, all the, all, all that poetry is in that context is a device to, uh, to mimic what you really want to do, which is fuse your brain to it, right? If you really want to know what it's like to be something, uh, the closest you're going to get is to become one with it, basically to fuse your brain in some way, and then the new collective will have some, some, you know, some, some mental states that are sort of similar to, to, to what you were looking for. But, but that's that's the problem, right? Is that is that third person theories give objective answers in a way that uh is is not going just the format isn't 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 appropriate for what you're trying to do yeah Uh, that's interesting i was just queuing up a paper i haven't read it yet but it's a paper uh basically trying to set up a computational basis for phenomenology Mm. and i was really curious as to whether that's possible or not because you're rendering phenomenology computationally what is the medium that you can do it do you lose too much in the process yeah Uh, man that's a that's a rich area but so, all right. So one thing we haven't really focused on in your work um, is bioelectric networks kind of a, as the software of intelligent systems. Mm. And in part, um, you've explained this elsewhere at length. I'll have links to, to other episodes. You've done this on, on the show notes if anyone wants to listen. But I was thinking and wondering about whether bioelectric networks provide a similar mechanism as gap junction unification, but at larger scales. And then the first question I would have then would be, can basically, I just don't know this. Can cells be a part of a bioelectric network without having gap junctions between them? And is that sufficient to achieve that kind of system-wide integration? Right? Is bioelectricity sufficient for scaling cells, or do we need those bridges? Because what I'm really getting at here is, if we don't need the hardware connection of gap junctions or literally fusing our brains, as you just described, um, and bioelectricity is sufficient, would bioelectricity be a more useful metaphor to think through these kind of intelligence agency, higher scale uh, system questions when, when we're talking about humans as the component parts? Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. So, so, so gap junctions are a really critical portion of the functioning of electrical networks. So um, I'm not going to say it's impossible to have electrical networks without gap junctions, but I think m- much of the computational power of, of, of electrical networks uh, arises because, because of these, these gap junctional connections. I mean, it's really critical even, even, even I mean, very early on uh, in, in cells, but, but also in brains. You know, general anesthetics, that's one of the things that general anesthetics uh, usually do is they, is they decouple gap junctions. So, mm. when, oh, right, right? so, so yeah, it's, it's very interesting. You, so so you, walk into, you walk into surgery and there you are as a centralized intelligence and you say uh, to the doctor, boy, I really hope this goes well. Uh, you know, I've got some plans for afterwards. And then, and then here comes the halothane and the gap junctions decouple and then you're gone. The cells are still there. Everybody, you know, uh, all all the cells are still are still there, but they're not coupled. And you, as that centralized um, kind of kind of nexus, 
are, are gone for a couple hours while they do whatever they have to do. And then afterwards, the most amazing part of this actually is that it ever comes back to normal when, when the, when the get, when the, when the gas is gone and the gap junctions get to reform that you ever come back to the same state. That's, that's actually extremely interesting. And it doesn't happen right away, right? If you, if you watch uh, some of these YouTube videos of people coming out of general anesthesia, you know, there's a good chunk of time when, when people say they're pirates and gangsters and all kinds of crazy stuff as your, as your brain is trying to settle back into the correct attractors. Um, but 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 I think these these gap junctions are really important for for proper bioelectrical signaling. Electricity again is not the only thing that can do this. I'm sure somewhere on some other planet there's some other way of doing this that has nothing to do with gap junctions and, and ion channels. But 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 here um, from the time of bacterial biofilms, uh, evolution basically noticed that electrical dynamics uh, are a great way to do computation. Right, it's not an accident that that brains use it, that our computer technology uses it. Evolution figured it out a long time ago. Um, electricity is just is just a, a, a phenomenal way of integrating information across distance, having feedback loops that give you historicity and memory, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, okay, so to think through this, this space is kind of more than human space in terms of systems. I want to bring in that paper, uh, a paper you recently co-authored, integrating Buddhism, biology, AI, because I think it does that. It provides a way to think about you know, how we might continue that evolutionary story of advancing intelligence in terms of a variety of systems um, at multiple scales. So here's a little abridged snippet from the abstract. You wrote, we show that Buddhist concepts offer a unique perspective and facilitate a consilience of biology, cognitive science, and computer science towards understanding intelligence in truly diverse embodiments. We propose that the scope of our potential relationship with, and so our moral duty towards, any being can be considered in light of care, a robust, practical, and dynamic linchpin that formalizes the concepts of goal-directedness, stress, and the scaling of intelligence. And so there's this relationship that you elaborate between goal-directed activity, intelligence, stress, care. Um, we've covered intelligence and goal-directedness. I want to quickly touch on uh, care and stress. And we should probably start with stress because it's a really nice way to think about this. So in this context, what is stress? Yeah, so so this this goes back to the idea uh, from, from earlier in the discussion of, of, of stress as part of the cognitive glue that binds pieces together. I mean, you can, you can, you can start off with it, with any, um, any homeostatic agent, you can start off with the idea that stress, for example, cellular stress, uh, is a reflection of the current uh, error. It's the delta between, uh, where you want to be and, uh, and, and where you are now. Right. So, so that right. measurement, that measurement error. So, so, but, but, but stress has, 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 a, has, um, uh, two, two interesting components to it beyond that. One is that, stress scales. So if you tell me what it is that you're stressed about, I have a pretty good idea of your intellectual uh, sophistication, right? Again, like before, like we were saying before, if you tell me that you're stressed about the local sugar level, well, you might be an E. coli. But if you tell me that, hmm. uh, you know, you're, you're stressed about um, the fate of, uh, you know, humanity with the, with the rising, uh, you know, earth temperature or whatever, I'm going to say you're probably at least a human. And if you tell me that I am only able to be stressed about the welfare of the three people that are directly in my household, that's one kind of human. And if you tell me that I, I can actually feel, I can viscerally be stressed about all of the living beings, uh, you know, in the universe, then you're some sort of, you know, like, like some sort of Buddha-like uh, creature that, that, that may or may not exist yet. And, and if you're somewhere in between, you might say, look, I, I'm stressed about everybody. But when I hear about something terrible happening to 100 people, 
and then the same thing happens to 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 a hundred thousand people. I'm not a thousand times more stressed. I can't be. I don't. I don't have a linear response there. I've I've sort of flattened out. Then I say you're you're probably a, a, a current modern human. So, mm-hmm. right. So so the ability. So the, so the question is, what is it that you're stressed about? And what what are what are the what are the what's the size and scope of the things you're stressed about? And so that that leads to one of the ways one of the ways to think about it is, uh, can you? I mean, the, the, where, where one one place where that paper started was in thinking about. Uh, we, we all know what diminished capacity is, right? So you go to court and somebody did something, and then they say somebody argues, well, this person does not have the capacity of a standard human to care about things, therefore they're not really responsible, right? So that's diminished capacity. Well, there should also be, of course, uh, and uh, there should also be examples of enhanced capacity because current modern humans are are in in no way. Um, arguably the top of this this uh, this food chain and so what does a greater being look like it's important because as we talk about things uh things changing so people are going to have implants of various kinds in their brain and they're connected to you know uh, various devices and the internet and they've had organs swapped out and senses swapped out and all this stuff at some point right we need to we need to really have uh uh, a kind of a, a, a generic um, scale of 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 the the cognitive capacities of, of all these different kinds of creatures, and the capacity to care. What is it that you care about? How big is your uh, horizon of concern? And you know, if um, if it's, it actually so, somebody asked me this on another on another interview, somebody said, "Look, if if you're willing to swap out body parts, genetics, uh, you know, body materials, so what is a human?" Like, like, what do you think a human right. really is? Because, because I don't think it's the genome and I don't think it's your anatomy and I don't, you know, what, what, what is it really? And it was a great question. And as best as I can tell a human, it, what, what, what human really refers to is a level of moral capacity. I don't care what you're made of. I don't care how you got here. I don't care if you were made in a factory or, or, or if you were, you know, shipped to some other planet where you can, you know, swim in their methane oceans, that, none of that matters. What, what really matters is being a human is a certain bandwidth, a, a certain width of uh, capacity to care about, uh, about others, about, about other types of beings and what happens to them. And, uh, you, and, and I'm sure that it, that it, that it's possible to create creatures that are way, have, have way bigger capacity than humans. Maybe it is possible for somebody to actually care in the linear range about every being on, on the planet, for example. And maybe it's possible for today's humans to become that, right? And so I think, and, I, and I'm no, I, sh- I should say, I'm, I'm no Buddhist scholar, right? The, 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 all, the, all the specifics were, were written by my co-authors as far as the Buddhism stuff is concerned. But, as, but, but my understanding of it is that it's focused on exactly this. It's saying that the way to progress and to uh, increase your own uh, uh, moral capacities to turn that outwards and to start actively caring about the uh, about the experience of other beings. And this is the concern with everybody, you know, with with the with the suffering and the mm, kind of uh, you know the status of, of of other sentient beings. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And and it's so interesting. It was such a clever setup, right? The way that you define intelligent systems is by that common ingredient of, of goals. The very existence of goals implies that there's a gap between the system's present and desired state. That gap yep. is the stress. Yep. Um, and so intelligence is almost in necessary coexistence with stress, right? You can't have one without the other. Um, I agree. No, no stress, there's no gap, so on and so forth. Yep. Um, and, you know, with an eye towards Buddhism, we can say that 
you know, to exist as an intelligent system is to experience stress yep. right? in all intelligence. There is stress. And of course, this is why in the paper, they go on to say that actually in these terms, stress is a good translation of dukkha of, of what's otherwise begrudgingly translated as, as suffering. Yep. Right? You even wrote in the paper that in this world of stress, existence equals dissatisfaction. And so dukkha is a continuous state that compels beings to act. So I, I thought that was such a wonderful framing. Hmm. Um, and, and this idea too of the relationship between the size of your goals that are represented and the complexity of the stress that those then larger goals are dealing with. There, there's a lot there, but yeah. in the interest of getting to questions, I really want to ask you, I'm going to zoom by them. So we've defined stress and care would care would be literally care for that, that gap, right? There, stress is the gap. Care is to actually have feel this moral duty towards it. Right. Yeah. And, and to, and, 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 and care has another, I mean, care does a lot of work for, for example, uh, and I don't, I don't know about you. Well, let's, let's try this on and, and see what you think. Maybe, maybe other people will disagree, but, but let's say that, um, let's say that, uh, you know, again, again, uh, if, if, if your spouse, uh, goes off and has a bunch of stuff replaced and comes back as a different kind of being, what's, what's, what's really the question you ask to figure out if you can remain, married, let's say, right? Mm. Like, what, what do I really want to know? Do I really want to know what, what kind of liver you have? No, I really don't care. You know, do I really like, what, what do I really care? About? What do I really need to know? What I really need to know is what you still care about. Because if you, if you, if you go off, right, if, if your spouse goes off to some procedure and comes back and says, I, I, my, my IQ has just been raised to such a level where all of your worldly concerns are of absolute no relevance to me. I'm now only thinking about the shape of the universe, you know, at the, in, in, at the parsec scale and whatever. I don't think we can be married anymore. That's not going to work. Right. And, conver and, right? and conversely, if, if you meet somebody and, and their, uh, their, their level of care is such that, you know, they're pretty much only interested in, in you know, what they're going to eat for breakfast and it doesn't really go further than that, that also isn't going to work. Care is pretty much... What would that, at least as far as I can, I can feel out, that's the thing that the, the, the acid test that you're going to use if we are still compatible in, in that particular relationship is what is it that you care about? Everything else is kind of up for grabs. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So we had these three ideas, right? Stress as a gap between present desired states, care is concerned for that gap and intelligence is the capacity, the competencies to close that gap. Now, the, one of the questions for me then is, okay, what can this framework do if we accept these definitions? What now? And the paper gets into this really fascinating work of, you know, creating mathematical, uh, mathematical representations of cognitive horizons and relating this to the Bodhisattva vow. But there was one bit I wanted to focus on in particular, and it was this quick little paragraph about mind control and kind of in line with the Buddhist idea of no self, that there's no singular enduring control agent. It, it gives a nice little proof as to why uh, control over one's mind in the short term as any meditator will quickly learn is impossible. Mm -hmm. you know, thoughts arise from the deep. I can't control them. But the paper suggests that mind control in the long term actually becomes increasingly feasible and is actually bound up with our ethical duties, right? That, that it's a, yep. almost a, a moral imperative to design environments, uphold the conditions and undertake strategies that can change the statistical distribution of the kinds of thoughts we may have in the future. Yep. And I would expand yep. this to the kinds of minds that tend to emerge. And so in the paper where I got this from, it said that mind control is logically impossible on the short-term timescale, but may be coherent on a very long timescale, as in, yep. I've undertaken practices to eventually change the statistical distribution of the kinds of thoughts I will have in the future. This, in turn, underscores the importance of long-term strategies, such as a vow to expand cognition. So this strikes me as a strategy that applies to the economy just as well as anything else, that we can undertake strategies that eventually change the statistical distribution of the kinds of thoughts, the patterns of phenomenology, the kinds of consciousness 
that arise as a product of developing within a given socioeconomic environment, being one arm among many. And to, to make it more concrete, um, you know, I see the generalization of precarity over the past 50 years in the U.S. Let's take an example as something that has altered the statistical distribution of the kinds of phenomenology that people will develop towards anxiety, towards insecurity, towards a restricted self-interest, and ultimately towards cognitive rigidity, right? There's a lot of really interesting research on how experiencing economic scarcity actually makes the mind less flexible. And I think a, a commitment to expanding cognition, which as, you sh as you've shown is achieved by making it more flexible and exploratory and adaptive, um, has this economic dimension, whether we're talking about you know, unconditional provision of resources, allowing people to have, I don't know, less of their lives dominated by the imperative to earn a paycheck. And this might be guaranteed income, universal health care, a citizen's dividend. We might nationalize public resources, land, broadband, whatever. But to spin all this into a question, in the paper, you explicitly state that much work remains to identify policies for informational coupling of subunits that optimize the potentiation of collective intelligence and care. These policies will be as relevant to establishing thriving social structures as to the design of novel general intelligences. So given the caveat that you're not an economist and these are speculations, I wonder if you have any speculative thoughts on how we might apply the conditions that you've pointed out and we've spoken about for the past hour and a half in biological systems, how we think about adapting these to think about social structures. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm I'm not going to name a specific social structure uh, that I prefer, you know, that that I that I that I uh, <laughs> think we ought to be going towards. Although I can name some that I definitely don't think we ought to be we mm -hmm. ought to be uh, fooling around with anymore. Um, but uh, this, to me, this is a very much an open uh, a, a pro an, an open uh, research problem that we we ought to be we ought to be investigating what these. I mean, it, it goes right back to the thing you said right at the beginning of the of the talk, which is the the biggest, the most interesting thing of all of this is the scaling problem. It's the question of how do you predict what it is that a collective is going to want to do once a collective intelligence is formed. It's very difficult. We don't have mm -hmm. a good science of it yet. We 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 cannot predict when we get cells with a particular genome. We cannot predict yet from that genome what kind of body they are going to make. We have no idea. In fact, we we learned recently that that cells with a perfectly good frog genome can in fact make xenobots, not instead of frogs and, and tadpoles. And and people have known uh, this this in, in other contexts for for a long time. Uh, we do not have a science of predicting or managing the goals of collective intelligences. We do not know where these goals come from. Selection is is only one of the answers. Is, is only part of the answer. It's not really even the biggest part. I don't think. And uh, that that what you know what you just laid out lo long before I, th I think long before we can specify social policies based on this stuff. We have to understand emergent collective intelligence at uh, in in model systems things like robotic swarms simulated you know artificial life um, uh, xenobots all these kinds of things we have to develop a science of the emergence of collective minds given that we are all collective minds so uh, that that's a that's the research pro program and we are we are nowhere near being able to uh, to specify uh, uh, policies, we don't, we can't do it for cells. We can't do it for robotic swarms. We can't do it for anything reliably, really. Right? We're, we're, we we barely understand what what ants are doing in 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 and how they scale up. Uh, this is this is this is a a a task for the future of humanity. It is just beginning. It's an existential. Uh, existentially important task because I think if we don't figure this out, we're going to be in massive trouble for many reasons. And uh, and I think that's the question that has to be cracked: is is how do you predict and control 
the the emergent mind that you that that is going to arise in in various ways and 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 I hope you know hopefully what what my lab and, and other people have done is to contribute to the first part of that which is to learn to even recognize it in un, un, unconventional guises you're never going to get to the point of being able to predict and control it if you don't even believe it might be there in the first place right if you're if if you if you don't know how to recognize these things so I'm I you know that what I'm trying to do is is kind of dissolve these false uh, binary categories and to sort of uh, twist all the knobs on all these concepts to show the deep symmetries such that we can start to even even understand that what we're dealing with is 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 a vast collection of interpenetrating minds of various degrees of competency and then and then we can get to the task of being able to predict and control towards a you know some kind of a life positive outcome one point i think your work makes in the realm of biology that has a lot to teach us in other realms is kind of thinking about the relationship between top down strategies and bottom up so, for example, in regenerative medicine, let's say we have a human lost an arm, you know, it was cut off in a horrible slamming of a door accident. Uh, in the next few decades, uh, you've said this, even if we get really good at gene editing and so on, we're not going to decode the step-by-step process for how to rebuild a human arm. That's impossibly complex. Um, not impossibly, but it's very complex. So what we might be able to do, um, as you've done with smaller organisms, is learn how to trigger the relevant bioelectric pattern, which communicates and instructs for the goal, grow an arm, and once that goal has been planted into the armless person's bioelectric network, the body will then get to work doing it um, because bodies know how to do this even if we don't. And the point is that if we think about bioelectric triggering as a kind of top-down strategy, right, programming a process by triggering a goal rather than programming a goal by triggering a process, it affords us a kind of way of generating particular and intentional changes in a system that bypasses a lot of the complexity that makes it otherwise insurmount, uh, insurmountable from a kind of bottom-up approach. And I think this logic is really interesting as a way to think about, for example, economic policy, policy being a sort of bioelectric programming of the software of society, which communicates and instructs particular patterns and outcomes. So to look at an example, I always gravitate towards poverty, right? the question of how to reduce and eventually eliminate poverty, both domestically and abroad you know, being this kind of centuries-old chestnut in economics. And it looks to me like we've largely taken a bottom-up approach so far, and it hasn't worked. Right? Caveat being that global poverty is certainly on the decline, and yet there persists this relationship between progress and poverty, right? Even as far back as, as the 1800s, Henry George pointed this out, and domestically today, we're, we're certainly still seeing it. But we've approached trying to end poverty in the same way that we might approach trying to instruct a body to regrow an arm or an eye from the bottom up by giving it instructions for every step of the process. And we don't know every step of the process of how to regrow a limb. And evidently, we don't know every step of the process of how to eliminate poverty. Uh, we focused on strategies like education or subsidizing wages, innovation, skills training, you know, all things that we then hope will kind of spiral up and lead to these long run outcomes of reducing poverty. Now, another approach, which I would call top down in the same sense that we can't bottom up instruct a tadpole on every step to regrow a limb, but we can just go in and trigger the relevant bioelectric pattern, which instructs for the goal, grow a limb here after which the system gets to work achieving that goal in ways that escape us. For poverty, we can program the end of poverty as a goal into the system with something like a guaranteed income pegged to the poverty line. And, and certainly there are other ways that goal can be encoded. But the point is that similar to the bioelectric approach with limbs, 
we don't know the precise formula that will trigger a step-by-step achievement of the ends of poverty. And we've shown that we don't know how to do that. So instead, we could top-down program that goal into the system, and it'll take up that directive, and the rest of the system will adapt. So I wonder how you think about the extrapolation, and and more specifically, are there any guideposts uh, through your work in biology, wherever, that can help us think about what kinds of problems are best approached via top-down approaches, bioelectric or or whatever, and and which ones are best approached bottom-up? Yeah. Yeah, very, very, very deep questions. Uh, I, I, I don't believe that anything that we've done or anything anybody else has done in biology is is directly translatable into uh, into the into the some kind of correct strategy. I mean, people have certainly tried. You've seen what people have done with this kind of with the idea of evolution and social policy. That that's, that's yeah, horrible. hasn't always gone great, right? That, that, go, that goes very poorly. Um, and, uh, and, and, and by the way, the, you know, uh, one can, uh, I, I, I was born in a country where they tried the, the, the other option, which is to be, to basically, uh, at least in theory to, uh, uh, kind of tie everybody together and say, everybody's going to be forcibly nailed down to the same kind of level. Right. So, so we're going to gap mm-hmm. junction everybody to the same level that goes, right. wor- that goes even worse than the other version. So I don't like that at all. You grew up um, in the USSR. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that goes even worse, but, but, but I'll tell you, uh, I'll, 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 t- I'll tell you this, um, I think that uh, the, the reason that the reason that 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 this um, that this top down control and, and let me just give a quick a quick example of uh, of, of what I mean by by, by this top down control that will make sense to people. Imagine you have a rat and you want the rat to do a circus trick. You know, let's say it's going to put a little ball in a little hoop or something like that. Uh, you got two, you got two basic options. You you can you can do the bottom up approach, which means you're going to identify all the neurons that run its muscles, and you're going to play it like a piano. You're going to literally like a puppet. You're going to you're going to you're going to fire off all the right neurons to make the thing walk and put the ball in the hoop. Not saying that's impossible. At least in theory, that should be possible. I don't I don't know how long it'll take us to do that. Probably a really long time, but but at least in theory, it should be possible. Or you can do what people have been doing for thousands of years before they knew what brains were or what was in our heads, and that's you train the rat. It's very easy, right? And and the reason the reason that works, it's much less effort. It's much simpler. You don't have to know much about your system, other than that it's a goal directed agent. You have to know a little bit about what it likes and doesn't like, so rewards and punishments. So the whole the, what 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 what's freeing and important about this um. I call By training, it, I, do you mean just giving rewards for the behaviors you like? Yeah, yeah, behavior yeah, shaping yeah. the way the way you get the way you get you know circus uh, circus yeah. rats to you know to do fun things. So so what's 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 freeing and useful about this this concept of i i, I call it um the uh the spectrum of persuadability which is you know you have you have very simple machines on one end that's you know clockwork and the only way to control that is to rewire the physical hardware then you have some slightly more simple some some slightly more complex machines things like thermostats which actually have goals and then you can change the goal by changing the set point you don't need to rewire it you don't need to really know how the rest of the system works you just have to know to be able to read and write the goals then you have more complex systems that have rewards and punishments you don't even need to know how they store their goals you just need to provide feedback right and then you have even more complex systems like humans where you don't even need to provide rewards and punishments you might be able to give them rational reasons for doing things and then walk away having spent very little energy and then they'll go off mm. and do massive things right so so as you move rightward along this 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 continuum you, what's what's cool is if you identify correctly what kind of system you're dealing with you can optimize how much energy you put in for the output that you get if you're if you make a massive mistake then then you end up uh, you know arguing with 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 clocks or or treating humans like like uh, you know like like machines like simple machines and and that of course is problematic the idea is to find the right level for whatever system you're dealing with but the reason any of that works 
is, is because if you've identified the right system, you have basically characterized what it is that that system is already capable of. In other words, the reason that our regenerative, you know, when we, when we tell uh, cells in the in the in the gut of a tadpole to make an eye, and they do it, and we and we just do it with a with a with a particular ion channel um, in, uh, in misexpression. The reason that works is because we've already identified that that system already knows how to make an eye, and there's a particular subroutine in there. So so you have to understand the causal structure of your system. I have absolutely no idea, and I don't know if anybody knows what the causal structure of an economic system <laughs> it really is. What does yeah. it already know how to do? I have no clue. And, 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 I've, and I've said this before, one of the interesting things about um, taking this per- my, my perspective seriously is that instead of uh, philosophy where people you know, can have feelings about what should and shouldn't be, you do actual experiments. So, so for example, if I, if I said to somebody gene regulatory network, they'd say, oh, that's a dumb mechanism, right? That's the, you know, that's a simple machine. All these genes do is turn each other on and off. Well, guess what? It turns out it, it, it can do, it can do uh, five or six different kinds of learning. So you wouldn't know that if you just made an assumption because you kind of feel like that's what chemical networks should be. You have to right. actually do the experiment. So is it, is it, and, and I've, I've, I've wanted to do this for a long time. Could we take models of things like uh, economic systems of weather patterns of energy flow through a city of, of, um, you know, uh, all, all these kinds of weird, uh, you know, kind of, kind of complex systems. Can we try training them the way that we did with gene regulatory networks and ask what are they actually capable of? Is there notions of habituation? Is there notions of sensitization, associative learning, instrumental conditioning, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe symbolic representation who, who maybe counterfactuals, who knows what they're capable of. The point, the point is if you assume they're not capable of anything, any of it, you are never going to find out. These are, this is a, this is not philosophy. This is an experimental program and somebody needs to do the work. Now, maybe someday we will get to the point where somebody can look at a system and go, oh, I know what this is. This is roughly between, you know, a two and a three scale on, on the spectrum of persuadability. And, and they'll be able to guess right now. We can't even, we, we're, we're nowhere near being able to guess that stuff. We have, we have, we have all kinds of ridiculous, um, preconceptions about these things that, that are not based on anything. So, yeah. so when, when we get better at this, uh, then it may be possible to say, you know what economies know how to do? They know how to do this and this. And I mean, just like, just like in, uh, in, in bioelectric networks, we found out that if you're, if you have a, um, an oncogene in one part of your body and it may or may not uh, make a tumor, uh, this is this is this was in in tadpoles, not humans, of course. Uh, whether or not they make a tumor is in large part a function of voltage patterns on the other side of the body, far away. You would never think that if you hadn't done the work, you would have no idea that impacting the voltage on one side of the body will impact whether the tumor comes out on the other side. And so that kind of non-local intervention may also be true in all kinds of systems where you find out that, you know, if we just put, if we just, uh, made a rule over here about this, it actually ends up percolating into this, this other, um, you know, desired. And, and of course, everybody knows the other version of this, which is on, on, um, you know, undesirable consequences. When you do something, you say, oh my God, I never knew that it was going to lead to this. So that's yeah. everywhere. And and the only way to deal with that is to really understand um, what the causal structure of these, of these systems are. And I, in general, am uh, kind of very leery towards doing towards making any changes in these systems, or, or, or do, doing more regulation in these systems before we really understand how this stuff works. Because I, I, I fundamentally think that some of the worst um, some of the worst in some of the worst behavior patterns and instincts in, in, in humans 
come out when they are given power over other humans, right? That mm-hmm. that's just that's just a, a recipe for you know, uh, the, and it, it's a recipe for really uh, for real problems. And so, for all the kinds of economic things that you talked about, as as an outcome, it, it all sounds great, but oftentimes the you know in terms of you you know universal um universal uh, income and all that stuff, the, the, the outcome sounds, sounds sounds wonderful but when you actually think about what the implementation steps are at some most of these things boil down to well we're going to take this thing that people uh, are are doing and we're going to force them to do something else and mm-hmm. and right and whether whether that be you know we we want you to farm more because everybody needs more food and and food prices are too high like somebody at some point is going to be telling you to get up early and farm more at some that that's what the, almost all of these things tend to boil down to something like that now now in the end this is all going to get i i hope this is all going to get resolved with 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 robotics and and, and you know and, and free energy and things like that all of the, all of this will go away whether whether we will survive to that point i don't know but i i'm just i'm just very leery of applying any of these things as as economic or social policies before we know what, what we're doing because it's much easier to make mistakes and uh and and we're very prone to um to doing it wrong yeah and, and i think your work gives us a basis to to start understanding these systems better uh yep. final question i'll let you go um we've been talking about how individual parts get united into you know their subcomponents into higher level systems and there while there might not be literal gap junctions or maybe there are that mind meld individuals together um, there are a number of arenas in which it looks like we're becoming swept up into parts of higher level systems. We can talk about social media, a city. Yep. I mean, I recently moved to New York City and the prospect that it has its own consciousness feels more correct every day. Yeah. Um, yep. And so your work leaves me feeling relatively optimistic about that, that doing so, scaling up systems is how we increase collective intelligence and agency. But I think there's also a kind of interesting pessimistic uh, look at this. And oh, yeah. I was just reading Eric Wells' newsletter, a colleague of yours at, at Tufts. Um, Eric being a past guest on the show, and I thought he put the perspective really well. Right? So he he was writing in the context of you know Tehard de Chardin's idea of the new sphere and omega yep. points, yep. and how small consciousnesses scale up all the way to a singularity. Um, but I, I think it applies more generally to any part that gets integrated to a higher level system. And this is the way that he put it. He wrote, "We should take away that if you're a subset of a larger system that is conscious, you might end up enslaved to it in an unconscious manner." There's even some evidence that the evolution of multicellularity led to a complexity drain on individual cells where they outsourced much of their internal biochemical intelligence to the whole. And this idea of complexity drain I found really interesting and also kind of discomforting, right? The rationale from the research he cited was that higher level systems render parts and capabilities of the lower levels redundant. And so those lower level parts get rid of those capacities in favor of efficiency for the system on the whole. But if we think of those lower level parts as us, as individuals, as you and me, what we're talking about are individuals, you know, enmeshed in planetary systems and those systems rendering our capabilities redundant and incentivizing us to kind of strip them away. And I don't know if the trade-off of, you know, what we gain by streamlining a collective consciousness is worth what we lose in the complexity drain. So I wonder how this strikes you if you see any concern in this idea of complexity drain. I, I definitely see a, a uh, th- there definitely is a dark side to any kind of collectivism. I mean, it's it's not entirely about the uh, the, the drain because you, the other way that it might go is that uh, oftentimes these complex systems exploit the, as I said before the um, the competency of the individuals of the of the subparts and actually learn to rely on them in, t- in terms of so 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 evolution doesn't try to get the eye to be less competent in doing what it's doing. It's actually 
uh, cranking up the uh, the capacity of the parts to do more because it, because it, so so in my view the ratchet actually goes the other the other direction but mm. but but that doesn't that doesn't matter in in either way I think I think he's completely right for the following reason um, we we do not have any clue what the goals of a novel collective intelligence are going to be. We don't know where goals come from. We don't know how they're set uh, in, in systems that don't have an evolutionary past that you can sort of cheat and just say, well, of course it's this way. It's because everybody else died off and that's why it's this way. We don't, we don't, um, we don't know where these goals come from. So that means uh, it means two things. It means one, uh, if you are part of a larger system, the goal of that larger system may, may operate in, in a space that in which your, your goals are, not, not only not only too small to matter, they don't even make any sense. So, for example, um, you as a human think nothing of going rock climbing and rubbing a whole bunch of cells off of your palms, uh, you know, and uh, because you have goals, you're going to be fit and you're going to, uh, you know, impress somebody and you're going to have this hobby. The cells in your skin are just going to get rubbed off and and die. You have zero, <laughs> right? You have, you have zero concern over it. You didn't uh, spend any time worried about it. Uh, you just don't care. You are operating in a completely different space. And so uh, it is, I think it is, it is just as likely to be part of a large system that uh, doesn't care at all about the kinds of things you think are, are, are important. Now, whether that's worth it is again an interesting question. From from what observer's perspective, right? So, for, from the perspective right. of right, from the perspective of a, of a good amoeba or a you know a lacrimary or something, your body cells are uh, really really kind of uh, dumbed down. Like they're like white lab uh, lab rats who are you know just pale versions of of wild rats, right? They're just really you know not not really uh, competent at all. They wouldn't survive a minute you know out there on their own. But from the perspective, but but you spend any time losing losing sleep over this? No, from your perspective, forget this. Forget what the cells can do. Look what I can do. I you know I'm 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 this much bigger thing. So so yeah, it's real easy to become part of a bigger system that has none of your interests really at heart. Um, so that I think is a is a major risk. And and the other thing is, uh, and I've sp- I spend a lot of time thinking about this. And I don't know what the answer is, but I don't know if is it is it possible to know whether or not you in fact are part of a system with bigger goals? Like, how do you mm. detect that? That would be that would be just just re- realizing that you in fact are just a skin cell in the you know in 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 this much larger structure is a um it's it's just it's it's a kind of horror that I, I don't know i don't know if uh you know if anybody's if anybody's really really uh, uh written about it is is this right. idea when you when you realize not just that there are gigantic systems that are, that dwarf you but you're actually part of one right that's that's a peculiar that's a particularly kind of you know kind of existential um uh dread and and is it possible to to recognize that and is it possible to know what they want Hello, this is Oshan from the future of this conversation. I am chiming in because I cannot resist uh, with something that I wish I had said on the spot, but I didn't. And this is my podcast, so I had the power to add this in now. But Michael's talking about the, the dread and the horror of discovering that we are not the end of the line of systems with goals, right? But that we're embedded within larger systems, in which case we're just being trained by them to be good parts laboring towards the goals of those larger systems, which are invisible to us. And I think that's partially right, right? There is a dread and horror in that, but conversely, there can also be a sense of of salvation in that, right? I I actually don't think it's too far of a, a stretch to say that religion is reaching for the teleology of the systems that we're embedded in 
that extend beyond us, right? Beyond both our comprehension and our perception. And for a lot of folks, I think there is a deep existential relief and, and believing and having faith that we aren't the end of the line of agents, that actually we're part of a something larger than us, right? Literally, and that something has and exerts a form of intelligence that gives meaning and purpose to all that we're doing. Now, there's caveats on both of these perspectives, of course, but I just wanted to add it in. Okay, back to Michael. I, I actually, I, I spent a bunch of time uh, last few weeks thinking about what it's like to be a collection of a node or a collection of nodes inside of a neural network. So if you're, if you're, what do you, what do you see? If you're, if you're a node inside of a, of an artificial neural network that's being trained, right? When you look around, you don't see if, if assuming, assuming that you yourself were complex enough to have this, to have this thought, you don't see a dumb, uncaring universe in which you can learn and do whatever you want. You see a place with mind everywhere. You are being trained. You're not learning. You're being trained. The universe rewards you and punishes you for various things. As a right, as a as a node inside that that network, you are uh, you you are the target of this of this of this giant mind. You're absolutely part of it. Um, you would be you would be wrong if you took this kind of minimalist approach and said, "Ah, it's a cold, unfeeling universe. Nobody cares mm-hmm. what I do." No, absolutely, you, you'd be you'd be factually incorrect. And so, uh, from you know from from that perspective, now now you wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to fathom what the goal actually was. So let's say it's a neural network that's like tra- trained to recognize, you know, cat uh, cats of you know cat faces or something. Uh, y- all you would know is that for some reason the universe loves it when you pick out eyes. That's what it wants you to do. Now, what mm. the hell that's for? What a cat is? You you have no clue. This is this is this is what people say when they say you know the universe moves in mysterious ways. It sure does. It's in, it's inscrutable. And, uh, and you as the subsystem, uh, probably I, I bet, I mean, I can't prove this, but I bet there's some sort of girdle theorem about not being able to understand anything, you know, about what the actual goals of the, of the system in which you are embedded is right. Uh, but, but, but maybe there are some mathematical tools to even tell you that you are part of such a thing. And, you know, and I don't know. And, and yes, I think, I think, I think, uh, simply scaling up is definitely not, the answer, you know, gap junctioning ourselves all together is not a panacea. It's not a road to optimal uh, social structures. We need a lot more work to understand what what that might be, if the, if there even is such a policy. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about. I was reading about uh, the idea that valence is the intrinsic utility function of the universe, and in, in terms of what you were just talking about, in, instead I'm thinking valence are the pellets that some larger system feeds us in order to train us in a particular direction. You can never it, know. It, it may well be. It may well be right. And and we all know people who feel people who will tell you that you know I, I don't know why or how, but in my life I've noticed these large patterns. These things happen, and I don't believe stuff happens just you know for a reason. There's a there's a there's a cycle and all this kind of stuff. Well, who knows? It's it's very hard to know. But it, it, I, I think it would be it would be foolish to rule that out. We 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 do not know. Yeah, I'll leave it there. So hopefully that'll that'll motivate listeners to to get into these questions because they're so rich and important. But uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a blast. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, thank you for the conversation. It was great. Right. If you made it this far, thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to learn more about Michael's work, you can head to the show notes page. That's at musingmind.org slash podcast. Click on Michael's episode. You'll find links to his writing, 
other interviews he's done, his website, and so on. If you want to hear more from Michael, as I mentioned, there are a few extra audio snippets that are available for Patreon supporters. I'll also be releasing uh, in a week or two an episode reflection. Um, so if you'd like access to any of those while also supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash And in parting, uh, I wanted to touch on something that Michael said. We may well all be, you know, nothing but the equivalent of skin cells to some larger collective intelligence that is as massive compared to us as we are to our own skin cells. And, you know, we may well be, it, it may be dragging us along in pursuit of its own goals. And, and even if this life that we experience is the equivalent of being dragged across a jagged face of rocks and left to die while the larger system enjoys its rock climbing, um, we nevertheless, we have the capacity to make this experience worthwhile. And a, a good Buddhist would say that it already is, and we just can't see that. And I'm sympathetic to that, in, at least in part. But in the spirit of emancipatory social science, the economy provides us a way of altering the environments that produce us and altering that statistical distribution of the likely kinds of minds that emerge from our society. Society itself being understood as an evolutionary environment that produces minds. And if we take that to heart the next few decades, then I can't help but, but feel excited to be alive and participating in that process. And I think that'll do it for today. I hope everyone is well, and I'll talk to you next time.